Hi everyone, it's Carrie Beach and welcome to the Traveling Pony Podcast. I'm so excited for you guys to be able to hear the podcast episode this week. We are joined by Eric Gray. I've been very fortunate to have Eric shoe my own horses for a while, but I cannot wait for you guys to hear the knowledge and wisdom he brings to the table as well as all of his life experiences that have made him into the person he is today. If you guys enjoy this episode, make certain to leave a review or a rating on wherever you're listening. And without further ado, let's just jump right into this podcast episode. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to come on the podcast, especially since I know that you're traveling right now. I cannot wait to have this conversation with you, especially since it's one that is so important for horses. Well, thank you for having me. So for anybody who doesn't know you, who are you and where are you currently based out of? So I am Eric Gray. I'm a certified journeyman farrier with the American Farriers Association and a APFI accredited farrier with the International Association of Professional Farriers, and I am located in the northern Atlanta area. So I'm so excited to finally be able to sit down and have this conversation with you. I know the last time you were at my barn, we were talking about how it's been over three years since you started doing my horses, and you've done wonders on every single one of them, especially since I swear almost all of them have some (laughs) type of issue. They've never been easy. (laughs) Thank you very much. So tell me a little bit about what exactly got you into shoeing horses. Was it something that your family had done or was it just something that you decided one day to pursue? So I grew up on a on a farm and my parents both worked off the farm and had, I guess, a hobby breeding farm, if you will, and raised trail type mm-hmm. smooth gated horses. So we raised a lot of field trial horses that the majority of their program for 20 years revolved around a Palomino walking horse stallion. So their goal was to re- raise good minded, safe trail and field trial type versatility horses. So my shoeing career kind of started out of necessity. So my dad worked for the J.C. Penney Corporation and he traveled okay. 47, 48 weeks a year when I was a kid. And uh, like I said, mom worked in Atlanta. So mm-hmm. they had trouble finding a horseshoer that would come and do quality work and, you know, show up reliable. It's a tough task for our area in the early 80s. So, you know, as I got older, I started to show a little bit. And dad had started trying to do our own horses. You know, when he was in town, he'd Tried to hang out with some local horseshoers, tried to learn what he could when we'd be at shows. Like I said, so when I was 11 or 12, I was trying for high point in the uh, flat child division one year. So if my horse threw a shoe and dad was out of town, somebody had to put it back on and, and there was nobody there to tell me no. So, uh, so that was me, you know, so it kind of started out of necessity. And then I had always thought I'd want to be a horse trainer and would just do my own shoeing. So when I was 15, I went to work for the summer with a local farrier, Wesley Teal, and ended up working with him throughout the rest of my high school career. Mm. You know, kind of fell in love with more of that side of the business than the training side. So that's how I got here. That's great. Hey, I mean, who wouldn't want to be a horse trainer, right? (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. You could just be a farrier instead and you get the same back pain. It's super easy. (laughs) Right. So now that everyone knows a little bit about you, I wanted to talk to you about the importance of having a good farrier like you just talked about. Right. Everyone has heard the phrase along the line of a horse is nothing without its four feet, which is definitely so true. And I've learned that the hard way. (laughs) 
So in your words, what exactly does that phrase mean to you? So, you know, the AFA has kind of coined the phrase, no foot, no horse. Mm -hmm. And it kind of all starts there, whether, you know, whether you maintain your horses barefoot or shod, you know, a healthy foot with some structural integrity is, is a huge part of a sound horse. You know, it's usually the first place we see issues that may stem somewhere else, but the foot is kind of the integral part. It's the easiest part for issue, you know, the easiest part of the body in my mind for issues to show up with. So, you know, it's, it is important. And that importance, I think, depending on what area of the horse business you're on, what is important can change, you know? So it's like early in my career, like I said, I'd, I worked on a lot of long-footed show horses or gated show horses. So I shot a lot of walking horses and saddlebreds and, and it was all about what was important was movement. And that's super important that a horse not interfere and have as much knee action as possible, mm -hmm. you know, and then I've worked with trail horse people and, and the biggest thing with the trail horses, it needs to have a shoe on when it comes back to the trailer, you know? So, <laughs> you know, what is judged as important or good work is the ability to keep a shoe on a horse, mm -hmm. you know? And obviously, you know, my dressage horses were shoeing with an importance on, on movement. My, my jumpers movement is important, but landing is more important, you know, to the soundness of the horse. So every little group has what's important to them. And, you know, those are the things we're looking for or trying to figure out is what we need to do to keep that horse at its best competitive level or best usable level. So just random question I've got to ask, because it seems like you just said you've, if you don't have a good foot, you don't have a good horse. Maybe what's one of the weirdest things that you have seen that has maybe a horse has been lame or something, and then it's come back to be the foot in the end. So, yeah, I've... <sighs> You know, especially now with the improvement in imaging technology, with the use of MRI and, mm -hmm. and better ultrasound, we see so many soft tissue injuries inside the foot that were previously diagnosed as shoulder injuries or are seen as, as problems higher up in the body. Now we're seeing that they're actually located, you know, in the, within the pastern and fetlock and within in your deep digital flexure, seeing deep digital flexure lesions and all that we didn't, mm -hmm. we weren't able to see you know, prior to that imaging technology. I've also been called out, you know, over the years, people that thought the horse had a broken leg or thought that, you know, it was a problem higher up the leg and you get out there and it's a, it's an abscess or they've missed a, a rock or foreign object in the horse's soul that is causing the problem. So that's not a, I would not say that's an uncommon occurrence, especially yes. depending on what type of client you're servicing. Oh, I know that I have probably called you before a text you and been like, I'm pretty certain my horse broke its leg and it's just an abscess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm definitely guilty on that. And you're totally correct because same thing, like since you are on this journey with me and Sloan and my own horse, like we totally thought that he had torn his collateral ligament and then we sent him up to UGA for an MRI and it was a keratoma. Right. And I had never heard of that. So talking a little bit about Sloan, Tell me, because I know this has been your first time like in person dealing with having a horse with a keratoma and everything. Tell me how maybe you approach it with it being something that's kind of newer for you. Yeah. So, you know, Sloan was an interesting case. It was a keratoma that was caught very early that was, you know, very small, very high up in the hoof capsule. And at the time that it was discovered with MRI, we weren't seeing the telltale signs in the bottom of the foot of the deviation of the white line. And, you know, to where the keratoma had started to press long-term against connective tissue or, you know, between the sensitive and non-sensitive lamina on the outside of the coffin bone. 
so yeah, so he was really an interesting one. Mm-hmm. I remember telling you and your mom when UGA suspected the keratoma, I was like, you know, I just don't see that because there's not the telltale signs there. And, and sure enough, like I said, that's one of the advances in MRIs and, and the imaging that we're seeing is is they were able to catch that. And now that that's healing and the hoof wall is growing down, we can see the deviation from where it was, you know, against the foot that's growing out, what, four months later. So yeah, that, you know, before that technology, we'd have been another four to six months before that would even been on the radar. Definitely. Hey, does it make your life easier? It makes it harder. Now you know what's wrong. <laughs> Do you want to know what's wrong? <laughs> you know, it, it, it's good. It's got its ups and downs like anything. And, you know, the longer the MRI is out, the better they're getting at using it as a diagnostic tool. Mm. So it definitely has, I don't know if easier or harder, but definitely has made for more precise and you know, more, more that we're looking for are with shoe and packages instead of just trying to treat a general thing sometimes being able, especially like on collateral ligament horses and all what mm-hmm. we're able to do to try to load one side of the foot and offload the other on those horses compared to, you know, what we were doing with ballpark. Hopefully this will help prescriptions at one time has changed a lot. Well, and that's so true because like even look at a horse like Sloan before we even knew it was a keratoma, we went straight to just injecting his patterns and everything. And now, like you said, with the MRIs and everything, we don't have to necessarily go straight into just blindly injecting and stall resting and everything. We can see if there's something actually in the foot. Right. It seems like you do a lot of stuff to continue furthering your education since right now you're also somewhere for a clinic. I know that you're on the board for some committees. Tell me a little bit about what you do for them and what you consider to be their importance. So I'm uh, one of three regional directors for Region 4 of the American Farriers Association. So Region 4 is basically from Arkansas south to the Gulf and east to the um, Atlantic Ocean. Wow. So I I believe there's nine or ten states and then Puerto Rico's in my region. My goal as far as, or my job as far as policy at the national level, the AFA is the most widely recognized body that offers certification for farriers in America. And we're the only association that British Farrier Association recognizes as far as our certification can be used as preliminary work in in their associate and fellowship. So mainly the the goal of the FA is, like I said, to promote certification and promote quality horseshoers across the country for horseshoers that have met the requirements for certification and journeyman certification. Okay. So my goal on the board or, or my job is to represent my region for issues that come up at the national level. Like we did some policy manual change today and voted on new examiners and new testers to f- help fulfill our certification program. Mm-hmm. So just to check in with my region and try to represent them at the national level as best I can. Got it. So sometimes it seems that some people reach a point in their education when they are making an income and feel like it's not necessary to continue to learn. Like we see this all the time, whether it's in the professional training side of things or maybe even the farrier side of things. So what are some things that you have learned or maybe some words of advice or wisdom that you have been told in these clinic type situations or like you said, being part of the board that you would have never learned if you hadn't put yourself in that type of position? So yeah, it's easy. Pretty much everything I know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I was real fortunate. Like I said, I started in 95 just doing a part-time apprenticeship 
in 96, I got my license and it, I met some other horseshoers turned uh, 16 in 1996 and was able to get involved with the Georgia Farriers Association, which is our local state chapter, the American Farriers Association. You know, I was hungry to learn and there were guys that were more than willing to offer me what they had. Mm -hmm. So what that led to was, you know, me getting in the truck with guys, getting pushed through my I passed my basic level of AFA certification two weeks before I graduated high school in 1998. Wow. And all that was due to God, you know, not the the man I originally apprenticed with. He helped me a lot, but he wasn't really into continuing ed, but guys that were just willing to let me get in the truck with them. So on days that I didn't work with Wesley, I'd go and get in the truck with whoever would let me. Mm-hmm. You know, guys opened their truck to me, they opened their shops to me, and really encouraged me to continue my education like I said, in the mid and late 90s. And then, you know, to speak to that, getting to a point where you're making some money and you're not taking continuing ed as seriously. I went through that. You know, there's another farrier, Craig Turnka, that's known worldwide. And and one of his big quotes is, uh, the biggest disease that affects a farrier is is isolation. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's so easy when you're not doing continuing ed. And when you, you know, there were times in my career where I'd go months at a time without working with a vet, you know. And to where now I'm in contact with a vet, usually three days a week at least. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there were times where I'd go through those periods of isolation and, and wasn't going to clinics and you have the burnout of the day-to-day job and, you know, things are good enough. And when you're not constantly putting your work out there, when, you know, and it, I'd say it's the same for trainers that aren't showing or you're, you get to showing in that one circuit and you just kind of get to where you accept how things are going, you know, mm-hmm. and there's not that push to go out and be better than yesterday. I guess there are people that can do that without continuing ed and all that somehow probably have more drive than I do. But it's hard for me without that constant, you know, putting my work in front of my peers and spending time around my peers that it's very easy for me to get complacent in my career. Since 98, when I went full-time, that's happened several times. So yeah, you know, with, I guess, 24 years full-time now, I spend more resources, more, you know, more finances, more time on continuing education now than I did, you know, probably the first 15 years of my career. Well, like you said, I think everyone kind of does that. That's something that even I ran into once I did decide to start doing all the horse stuff and going pro is that I didn't have a horse. And then even with Sloan, I've kind of made it my priority to at least try and continue my education because I kind of believe that if you're not learning something, you're dying. Like it's like right. you've got to continue to learn because what's the point if you're not growing? That's always been my mindset. Yeah. So how long did you kind of do the apprentice stuff then? Because I think like even in my position, being a trainer and everything, I think everyone's mindset is, okay, I'm going to go out there. I'm going to apprentice for like a year or something and boom, I've got everything. So how long did you kind of spend, you know, riding in trucks with everyone, like you said? So, I mean, I did that a lot through high school. So from 98 or 95, when I started to 98, every time I got the opportunity, I was in a truck. That said, mm-hmm. you know, like most young horseshoers, I was hungry to make a dollar. And there were people that were actually willing about a 16-year-old shoe their horse. So, you know, I, I started picking up clients, you know, in hindsight, a lot faster than I should have. Yeah. You know, it was when you're 17-year-old and, you know, you're in your junior year of high school and you're looking at what you're making compared to what the lady teaching you is making. It's it's kind of hard to uh, to not get a big head, you know, as a young farrier. Except before you you learn running a business and learn that everything you're touching is not profit. 
you know, it's real easy to feel real smart real fast in this career if you're not careful. So I wanted to ask you really quickly along the line of your apprentice stuff and everything. I know that you also have people who come out and help you. So switching the roles, what kind of made you want to offer these opportunities to other people who want to learn? Like I've seen other farriers who are just by themselves. They don't have any help. So what kind of pushed you to lend a helping hand to others? You know, like I said, I had a great start in my career being surrounded by guys that were willing to do that for me. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to Tennessee shortly after high school. I did an apprenticeship with another farrier that worked the show circuit and then ended up moving to Tennessee during that. And I ended up in an area where I was really isolated, you know, and there was no camaraderie between horseshoers. It was really cutthroat. Okay. So I've gotten to experience the best the industry has to offer and the worst. You know, I kind of look at paying back student loans in a way, if you mm-hmm. will, that, you know, I'm, I'm at a point in my career where I can afford to pay a guy a little bit to help me. You know, we may or may not get more horses done in a day, but it's just a way that I can give back to somebody getting started hopefully make their road a little easier than than mine ended up at times so (laughs) no that's great because it's one of those things like just like with the people in the horse industry of training if you don't further someone's education or if you don't have people beneath you then who will do it when you're gone right and that's been really cool you know this year i've gotten to partner up with a friend of mine tyler james Tower and I'd worked together, or Tower had worked for me about eight years ago wow. and done his own deal. And, you know, you've met him at your born mm-hmm. some, but it's really neat. So we've got a friendship. You know, Tyler is working through his journeyman certification process. You know, it's so he's on his toes, you know, and he's trying to to get to another level. And so it's really pursuing his education hard. I've got another guy that works with me, Noah Gowder, that is the Encyclopedia Brown of everything on the anatomy level. Okay. So it's really cool, you know, having them in the truck every day. It keeps me on my toes more, you know, mm-hmm. and I think we're all better for it. It's that whole iron sharpens iron thing that when you, you're around people that want to learn or you're around people that push you, it doesn't give you as much of an opportunity to rest on your laurels and, you know, just be content with it turned out as good as yesterday. Well, I think that's great that you offer so many opportunities for others because I have to believe like for you probably having like you said two different set of eyes also helps you if you're in a situation where maybe you want somebody else to look at a horse or just give another opinion absolutely so not only does having a great figure make a huge impact on the horses but it's very important to note the relationship between both vet and farrier. You know, I know in my case, having two people that are willing to work with each other to reach a common goal is critical. I know that I've had you out at the barn and then have had Jennifer at the same time and we got to like hash it out and figure things out. Right. So when you're called in to do a horse for the first time with a vet, whether you know them or not, how do you approach the situation as going there the first time and laying your eyes on the horses? You know, I think every case is so individual, and this is something that I've struggled with. And I think most, I'm not even going to just say farriers, I think most small business owners, Mm -hmm. probably there's a a little bit of a communication issue with with a lot of us. And I think a lot of it stems from that wanting to charge full steam ahead into everything. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's something I've had to kind of really work with in my career because you know, I, I'm an overthinker and I'll, I'll look at a horse and I'll kind of come up with what I think needs to be done. And I've run, you know, five scenarios in my head before words come out, you know, so get in those situations and, and then you're bringing a vet in, 
you know, farriers have not always been known as being the best communicators. And see, you've got a vet that's wanting to, you know, that's trying to calm down an owner, that's trying to assess a horse and then trying to figure out the best way to communicate with a farrier. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then you got the farrier that's, you know, wants to keep the owner happy, wants to come up with a shoeing protocol that we can, you know, kind of know in our mind is going to stay on the foot through the the cycle, you know, because that's one of the yeah. the big issues is a lot of stuff that gets done, you know, in clinical work on a horse that's going to be on stall rest or just hand walking. The fit and the amount of, of shoe and whether you want to call it support or leverage that can be left out around the foot is completely different than when I've got a shoe of horse that's going to go into a pasture for unregulated turnout, mm -hmm. you know, the best shoe job in the world is not going to do you any good in the middle of your yeah. pasture. <laughs> so, you know, so just trying to get all that on the same page is crucial, you know, and, and just, I try to be real honest with the vets. It's like a vet gave a prescription on a horse I was doing and, and wanted a specific brand of shoes and wanted, you know, everything was laid out with the brand of everything they wanted. And I called this vet up and I said, look, man, I, I don't see anything wrong with your, with the mechanics you're wanting, but I don't carry that brand. I really don't want to change my inventory just for this mm -hmm. one horse. So that I can put those mechanics into a handmade shoe or into a modified keg shoe and come up with what you're wanting, but it just won't be that brand. Mm -hmm. You know, in this particular instance, the vet was 100% happy with that. I ended up shoeing the horse for three years until it sold. Other instances this is what we want, you know, and at that point, I think as a farrier or as a professional, you know, mm -hmm. if either you're not comfortable doing it or you don't want to use those materials, you know, it's one of the hardest things I've learned to say is no, <laughs> you know, and I don't have to, you know, be rude about it or be ugly about it or anything. It's just, that's not what I want to do, you know, and I've shot myself in the foot with vets before earlier in my career. I didn't come out with these ideas that I had now, you know, I'm a guy that's had to find out the stove was hot several times by touching it. <laughs> so, you know, it's like I've had those interactions go bad. You know, I've had those where I had an incident several years ago and I shot myself in the foot with this vet for quite some time. I'll tell this one on myself. So I got, i have been watching this horse and the person that was riding this horse was kind of newer to mm. the equestrian sport and was trying to do things at the level they could afford rather than at the level they could ride. So trying to do a lot bigger stuff than they were capable of. So this vet calls me up and he's like, hey, you got any ideas about what we can do for this horse? And I said, yeah. I said, we can go in Havers and buy the owner some riding lessons. <laughs> you know, it was funny and I'm not saying mm -hmm. that he disagreed with me or this vet did. But, you know, that's not, it was not helpful to the situation at that time, you know, and, and hindered me in referrals from that vet for quite a while. So anyway, so I mean, it's things like that, that I think, and knowing, you know, I think it's with any, like I said, small business, especially in the horse business, I think a lot of equine professionals that are self-employed, we probably fall, you know, and I'm including myself, I'm not picking on anybody. A lot of us fall into a category of maybe a little bit more unemployable than just motivated to be self-employed. So, you know, that's why we work for ourselves because we're the only ones that wouldn't fire us. You know, a lot of that just falls into customer service, and that's something that I was very fortunate that, mm -hmm. like I said, my father was with J.C. Penney's and, you know, James Cash Penny that founded J.C. Penney's big saying was customers always right. You know, I kind of had that drilled into me as a young man, you know, dealing with, with business situations and all. 
you know, and I, I try to, I've gotten to a point where my self-worth doesn't revolve around what we decide to put on a horse's foot. You know, I'm there just to do the best I can do, you know, support the vet, support the trainer mm-hmm. and give my input, but I don't have to be right. You know, and it took a long time to get the, to that point. Mm-hmm. As you go through life and you learn, you know, that bell curve of learning where you, you learn a little bit and then, you know, what you know and what you think you know kind of don't always parallel. I had a lot more definite answers the first 10 years of my career than I have, you know, the last 14. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I think I, I probably have said I don't know more in the last five years than I ever had in my career, you know, and spend a ton more time doing continuing ed than I did the first 10 years. So. So I wanted to ask you, because on this topic of saying no and everything, I know that there's a particular type of shoe or you don't particularly love to do glue-ons. I right. know that. So give me your thoughts and your opinions on those type of shoes, especially since you have so much education. Like, what do you guys see on those type of shoes? So, you know, and, and part of the reason I don't like glue, just to be real up front is I'm not great with it you know mm-hmm. I think glue shoes have their place I think you know especially in the humid com- climate we live in the prep work to get a foot ready for glue is a little tougher than it is in a dry climate I like to compare it to when a lady gets fake nails gets acrylic nails you know mm-hmm. that when that nail comes off your actual nail fingernail underneath that is weaker and that's the same thing I see glue do to feet you know, when we do a really good glue job that we, we suffocate the foot with that glue some, mm-hmm. and then we peel the outer layer of the hoof wall off when that glue comes back off. So when you do that repeatedly, because, you know, every four to six weeks, you've got to take another layer of the hoof off to get the glue to stick again. Then we're putting that glue on it. Then it's peeling some foot off. Then we've got to redress it. And it doesn't take long to run out a foot mm-hmm. to where you take a foot that might have needed some help one time and turn it into, you know, a six month or year long project of, of having to stay in some sort of acrylic. So I wanted to ask you on that same topic, because, you know, I've had, or I've heard people say, well, I want to put my horses in these glue on shoes. So that way they're not getting nailed. And supposedly in some people's mind, they're like, oh, well, if I don't nail the foot, then it won't crack and all these things. But what do you think is more detrimental? Like, it sounds like glue to me is way more detrimental than shoeing a horse with a nail and it's foot cracking a little bit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like I said, glue has its place. I'm not opposed to it as a... I'm just opposed to doing it. So <laughs> you can do it all you want. You know, I personally, I feel that a quality nailed on shoe job is less detrimental to the foot long term than a glue job can be mm-hmm. as far as overall hoof health. If, if you've got a horse that's going into shoes for one or two cycles and then is going to be coming back out with the goal of being pasture sound or, or sound barefoot again, I personally have found the transition out of traditional shoes to be easier than glue shoes. Well, I mean, even with my own horse, Sloan, like, you know, we've transitioned him out of the steels on his back feet to barefoot. And I was shocked. I was going to text you a picture today and be like, it's almost to the point where I went and rode him today that you don't even see the nail holes anymore, which is oh, that's like, awesome. shocking to me because I was like, that means he's grown a ton of foot. It's only been like two cycles or something. Right. And I can just, you know, then we look at his front feet. And we've got to do all the stuff with his keratoma. And I'm like, well, <laughs> You know, like you said, every time we take that acrylic patch off, it's just a little chunk of foot coming off. Yep, yep. 
So going back to the whole topic of vet inferior work, I wanted to ask you, has there ever been a point in time where you maybe don't agree with what's being relayed from the vet or whatever? And how do you handle that? Do you just point blank have to go, hey, I think we should do X, Y, Z? Or has there ever been a point where you have to follow a vet and then maybe something happens and there's a repercussion and maybe you have to take that downfall? How do you deal with it? So, I mean, that's a that's a tough situation and that's where... I really enjoy, like we've been able to do with your vet mm-hmm. at your farm, where we can all three be there at the same time. You know, that is my ideal situation with working, whether it's a prescription or we're working on a pathology and we're just trying to, you know, combine, be a, a bit of a think tank on what we're going to do on a horse. Mm-hmm. You know, the I think where a lot can get lost and, and what's really tough is when you have a vet come and take x-rays the week before horses do to be shod. Yep. <laughs> and then we show up. And, you know, the owner's shocked because, or the trainer, whoever that, you know, well, they said his feet are way too long. And it's like, well, you know, it, it never fails that that was a horse that was supposed to be on a four-week schedule and got moved to five or a five-week horse that got moved to six. Mm-hmm. So it's like, well, you know, he was due the day before your x-rays were taken. Yep. So yeah, he's long, you know, and it, as horses grow, they tend to grow more toe than heel. The feet grow forward more than they grow down on a lot of these, especially a lot of these warm bloods. Mm-hmm. So, you know, our palmar angle and plantar angles are going down through the cycle. So, you know, a lot of times was the vet said to take more toe you know I've, I've had situations like that and i call the vet and i'm like yeah you know it's probably a quarter inch foot there to take off is what i was going to take off whether you did the extra or not mm-hmm. that's fine you know and that's what they mean but the the owner's expecting to see this different shoe job than what they got last time sometimes yeah. there's a bunch of toe to come off can mean 12 different things to to different people you know to a race plater that's shooting a horse every 14 18 days you know they're talking millimeters coming off you know to where an eight-week horse maybe three quarters of an inch is a lot mm-hmm. so it's you know anything between there can be a bunch of toe and so that's where when i can get those situations where it's me and the vet and the trainer and we come up with a plan in front of everybody is best case scenario for me you know i i have had like i said earlier that the best shoe job in the world doesn't do any good in the middle of a field so i had a horse years ago that was a chronic shoe puller and got diagnosed with navicular and um you know the vet wanted an egg bar that was fit way out the back to try to offer call sport i think a frog support wedge so it was something that i didn't you know and I, I called the vet up and i was like look i don't i don't disagree that this is a standard protocol for what your x-rays are finding mm-hmm. but i'm telling you right now i could you know i've been out there every week for the last two shoeing cycles it seemed like to put a shoe back on this horse it's like i can't fit him any longer than what he is and service my other clients you know and the vet was pretty adamant and that's what they wanted and i was like well who would you like to work with yeah because i would rather go ahead and you know dismiss myself from this case than i would you know have the headache of, it, of putting shoes on this horse forever you know, every week. Mm. And, uh, you know, so we ended up getting another farrier to go shoe the horse and he dealt with the headache, putting the shoes back on until they decided to do something else, you know? So, so there are situations where if, if I just really disagree with something or if I feel that, and I say that we are very fortunate in the area we're in, we've got several really decent vet clinics, really good vet clinics. Mm -hmm. And we've got vets that kind of get, the mechanics of the farrier part that it's not just 
this looks good in the textbook. You know, they get that we've got to look at the horse's job. We've just got a good group, and it's not, you know, whatever's been pushed at the, you know, they're vets in some areas, and the guys in those areas that pretty much have to carry whatever hoof care product was pushed at the AAEP's continuing ed last year that they saw the product rather than the principal. We've got some vets that are pretty lenient on filling the principal and not getting hung up on products in our area. So we're pretty fortunate with that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I've had, like I said, I've had those instances where it was like, you know, they want a certain product that I don't carry and it's not worth, you know, it's not worth my investment to get three or four different sizes of that particular shoe to do this one horse with when it's not something I want to add to my product line. So, you know, I mean, there, there are times that I say no, you know, that it's just not, it's not practical for me to try to do everything for everybody. No, I mean, no way. Especially with how much, you know, how expensive everything is nowadays to go out and go buy a ton of product just for one horse is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so crazy. So I wanted to talk to you about the importance of the farrier and client relationship. I know that sometimes I'm guilty of forgetting that I'm just one barn in a book full of many more, and I try to the best of my ability to not cross any lines, but I say that, and I know I've, like, texted you late at night and been like, my horse is, like, has a pulse, or, you know, he's thrown a shoe, or done whatever. So what do you think makes a healthy, functioning relationship between client and farrier? I think it comes down to communication, you know, and mm-hmm. that's something that I've, I've struggled with throughout my career you know, and realize it's a weak point of mine. So it's something I work on and just being upfront, you know, I think it's whether it's your young trainer, young farrier, new in any business, any client looks better than no client, you know, and, and you kind of got to go through that and take your legs. Mm-hmm. But I think as you realize, you know, I try to evaluate every interaction I have with a client, you know, in my head or just kind of run back through it, you know, when, when I get fired or, or somebody else gets hired from a horse, I try to evaluate, you know, what could I have done different? You know, and, and a lot of times I think it's the expectations and, mm-hmm. and boundaries, you know, that are healthy in any relationship that have to be, you've got to be real clear on. It's like, you know, there are times you've texted me late at night. If I'm at a place where I can text you, I do. If not, I text you during business hours the next day, mm-hmm. you know, and it doesn't make a difference whether you text one time or 12 times. I'm, that, that's how it's yeah. going to be. <laughs> I'm pretty upfront with my clients that, you know, I don't fix shoes on Sunday. You know, that's my family day. So there are things like that, I think, that's important for any sole proprietor to to really focus on is that, you know, I'm that yes, the customer's always right. Yes, you know. That's who I work for. You know, I love to say, oh, I'm here for the horse. And, you know, I, and I am, you know, I want, I want every horse I, I work on to improve or reach their full potential mm-hmm. and, you know, stay sound as long as they can. But, you know, there are times that clients see a new product and they want to try it. And if it's something I either, so I want to stay up to date on all that stuff, but I also want to be able to tell them, well, we can do the same thing with this as we're doing with that or, you know, or we try it, you know, so again, it, you know, it's their horse and their peace of mind. So even though. Sometimes there's stuff that I feel like gets brought up every year in my career mm-hmm. with different chewing fads and all. And it's so it's like you're having that same conversation that you've beat this dead horse over and over and over. But unfortunately, you've done it with a different person every time. So it's a new conversation to them. You know, it's hard to sometimes meet somebody where they're at with that and try to be di- diplomatic and excited instead of just saying, you're the 38th person in 24 years that's asked me this. And you know, therefore I'm going to dismiss you. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, that's just part of it, I think. So just building that communication and the boundaries of these are my work hours. And I, I think that's something you do with your business, you know, that, you know, there are hours of barns open and there's hours of barns closed and those are non-negotiables. And that's, I think, is a huge part, but, but it's got to be that way from the beginning. You know, you can't start and then go to somebody's barn four times on a Saturday and then get all upset because they call you on a Saturday to, you know, come do something. And rightfully, if you've always been willing to do it on a Saturday, you know, they've got a right to be upset and now you're not. So I think, you know, like I said, just I try to be up front with one of my clients that, you know, hey, I travel some. You know, this is what I can do. This is what I can't do. If that works, great. If not, you know, there's a lot of horseshoers in our area. Just kind of how that is for me. So I know that you just said kind of one of your ground rules since you don't work on Sunday and everything, but I wanted to ask you a little bit about a topic that I think maybe I would assume after being in this industry for so long, you've had to deal with, and that is the topic of not being paid. (laughs) So... I'm assuming you've experienced it. I don't see how you would not experience being paid for possibly, you know, months on end. So how do you handle a situation like that? Like, is there something you do in the beginning of meeting a new client that you kind of lay down and say, hey, I need to be paid X, Y, Z, or how do you handle it? Yeah, I'm pretty fortunate. You know, I mean, it used to be, you know, when I first started cash or check day of, Mm -hmm. you know, and then as you got some bigger barns, it was, you know, a 30 day window and all. You know, that's something, the networking and camaraderie among farriers has been pivotal for me because, especially in that time period of my career where it was like everybody was isolated and it was real cutthroat. When I was in Middle Tennessee, I got stiffed, oh, a lot, you know, and you'd get bad checks and all. And then, you know, then you'd catch on. It's like, well, I got a bad check last week. Then they called this guy, you know, and he came in and did 25 and they gave him a bad Mm -hmm. check. So it was like, you know, they'd have four farriers going. And they get one of them paid to come to them when the horses, you know, and these were 50, 75 head accounts. You know, it was like they'd keep one called up so they could keep the horses done. You know, when you catch on to stuff like that, been real fortunate in our area not to have to deal with that. You know, every now and then you'll have somebody that you beat them to the bank or something. You'll have to run a check twice or something. But yeah, I've been pretty fortunate. Like I said, we're in a pretty tight-knit community. Most of the farriers in our area get Mm -hmm. along at least on the professional level, you know, so if, if I'm picking up a client from somebody that I've got any questions about, when I talk to a client, I always find out who shod the horse before, you know, and if there's anything that's a red flag to me in that conversation, I'll, I'll call that guy up and, and just be like, hey, what's going on? You know, sometimes it's just that there was a relationship clash or that, you know, maybe it was a real life shoeing concern or maybe it was a scheduling concern or, you know, and every now and then it's, you know, you either find out that they forgot to tell you that their horses kicked the last three horseshoers or, you know, oh, by the way, um, you know, I still owe two guys for shoeing this horse. So like <laughs> I said, I'm, I've been really fortunate in our area that I haven't had to knock on wood deal with that much since, you know, 2009 and 10 when everybody was scraping to keep their horses. Mm-hmm. Oh, I mean, I feel bad if I forget to pay for like <laughs> a couple of days. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> And luckily nowadays, since it's like everyone's on some form of like Venmo, PayPal, you know, at least if you do forget, you have no excuse. It's literally a click of a button away. Right. (laughs) So I have a few kind of quick questions for you. They don't have to be quick if you don't want them to be. But are there any memories that particularly stand out to you during your whole process of learning how to shoe horses and where you are today? 
Oh gosh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I could talk about this for hours. <laughs> I said, I've been really fortunate early on in my career. Like I said, I got to work with Wesley Teal. Wesley was a real interesting guy in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. For somebody with no formal education on shoeing horses, he had probably the most artistic eye of anyone I've ever met for building horseshoes. Mm-hmm. So he'd start with straight bar stock and he wouldn't even measure his bar wow. stock. So he'd take and cut a piece and then take another piece and wouldn't wouldn't match it up to the first one. He'd just run it through the shear too. So, you know, and it's like they always turned out pretty close. And when he'd get done with a pair of shoes, he just had a knack for punching his nail holes where you could take one shoe and put put the shoes ground surface to ground surface and see daylight through all the nail holes. Wow. And I never saw him not have a pair match up. So, you know, and then I, I went to work for Curtis Hamilton. Curtis was the one who innovated the plastic pad and the plastic wedge pad for gated horseshoes. Mm-hmm. He had an extremely mechanical mind, you know, so went from a whole artistic approach to breaking everything down more like an engineer or mechanic would then got involved with the guys with the AFA. Mm-hmm. He said, I look back at a lot of those guys that let me get in the truck early on. Dan Hutchinson, who's passed on, and Steve Prescott was another one. And so Mike Holcomb was real instrumental on me getting involved in clinics real early. You know, those guys, and like I said, putting up with a kind of a cocky teenager at the time. When I did move to Tennessee, John Schmidt, who is now an AW, was, uh, you know, we were both, he's a little bit older than me, but pretty young and getting her feet wet and you know john really helped me was the one guy who helped me some in middle tennessee or helped me a lot get my business off the ground up there uh, when i stayed up there for eight years you know moving back and just there's a ton of guys like i said i am far from self-made in so many ways Mm -hmm. but that have just poured into my career you know and when i decided seven eight years ago that i was gonna go back and pursue my journeyman certification morgan hurst and eric gilliland and you know there were several other guys but those two guys just opened up their shops to me and eric and lucas gilliland both eric and his nephew and really pushed me you know to get through that process and you know the type friends that when you pass give you a call and just sort of be like yeah it's about time you know i mean just guys that are in your corner that's been something really cool you know just the power of networking with other farriers i think that's something that's that's super crucial for Mm -hmm. any entrepreneur or self-employed person is just to get in that network of like-minded individuals and people that get the frustrations you get, you know, because it's like, I think there are frustrations that happen in our industry that it's kind of hard to relate to people in other industries, you know, the people that work real jobs (laughs) that have policy manuals and, you know, HR departments and all that. There was a trainer, actually she for his son now, Carl Bledsoe, but Carl's dad, I remember, and I was real young, my parents had a horse in training with them, and somebody was talking about another horse trainer, and Dave Bledsoe told him, he said, you know, he said, my competition's not the horse trainer down the street. He said, my competition is the movie theater, the guy selling boats, and the guy selling jet skis and four-wheelers. You know, he said, I am in an entertainment industry, you know, he said, I'm in a hobby industry, and he said, I've got to remember that my clients are here to have fun, you know, that they're spending their excess money on fun, you know, and that's something that you know, really hit me at the time with that. And it's, you know, it's like, I don't, you know, I work for a lot of professionals, but I don't work for any Amish that have to have a horse to 
feed their family for the day. Mm-hmm. So I guess secondhand with my professionals that they have to have horses in, oh, yeah. but you know, they're going to make it to the store without one. Yep. So yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's a crucial thing for us all to remember. You know, that's like a huge part of this industry. So I've had mentors like that. And then during one period of burnout, I really thought about going back to training horses and, and did for a while, you know, cut down my shoe into a few days a week and uh, was riding some horses, riding some colts and some trail horses. I've always wanted to learn from you know, whoever I could. So I got some time to spend, you know, I made a point to spend some time with Ray Hunt before he passed away. And I've ridden with Buck Brandman and Dennis Reese and Joe Walter and Mark Lyon and Michael Goheen and several other, you know, really quality horsemen, you know, gotten to spend some time with them and, and seeing their philosophy on this and seeing, you know, the way they handle not just their horsemanship aspect, but the way they handle their businesses and you know, because you're selling a piece of yourself, just just like you every day. You know, your clients want to see you with a happy face. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to come in and tell you about their drama, but they don't want you talking about yours. Like I said, being able to see that and see that there's kind of these struggles everywhere in the business. When you see the trainers that are able to network with each other and have a place to kind of fight that isolation by sharing their frustrations and all, I think is I think it's huge. You know, keeps you from blowing up on clients and <laughs> getting called Karen and stuff like that. And so. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, so true. I mean, <laughs> I have to like always think to myself if someone says something, I have to just turn away and be like, oh, I'll do this. I'll try and figure out how to express my feelings another day. Yeah. <laughs> so the last kind of question I have for you is if you could give advice to anybody who's listening, what would you say? Maybe it's just life advice. Maybe it's something with shoeing. But what do you feel like is right on your mind? I'm going to go back to a quote that I got from a basketball coach in seventh grade from Walt Disney. And it was a quote in my senior yearbook. It was a quote by Walt Disney. It's good things happen to good people who work hard. Mm -hmm. That one's just always something I've tried to do. I failed at the good person part. A lot, a lot in my earlier life, but I've always been good at working hard, so. Hey, I feel that good person part too, depending on what day you get me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I try and be happy all the time, but sometimes you got to give me some room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, well, that's pretty much all I have for you today. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your day to come on the podcast, especially since I know you're probably in a hotel room right now. <laughs> That's quite all right. So I, I appreciate you having me. It's really an honor, Carrie. Thank you. Well, and thank you for putting up with everything with my horses and my craziness. Probably you don't see the full side, but there's some crazy in here. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you guys enjoyed this week's podcast episode. And a huge thank you again to Eric for taking some time out of his day to come on the podcast. I have to say a huge shout out or a huge thank you to anybody who has been supporting me on this journey. And this also includes the guests. You know, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes with recording. And a lot of time I talk to them before and after. So I just can't thank them enough for taking time out of their day to come on here, talk to me, and allow you guys to hear their thoughts and what they've gone through. If you guys like this podcast episode, make certain to leave a review or a rating on whatever platform you're listening. As well, make sure to check us out on our social media. The Traveling Pony has a Facebook, Instagram, which will be Traveling Pony BP, as well as we finally do have a TikTok under The Traveling Pony and a YouTube channel under the same name. I can't wait for you guys to see all the fun projects I'm doing as well as the new content I'm creating. And I just have one last question for you. Where will The Traveling Pony be next?